There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2020, Desiree Fixler was hired to be the Group Sustainability Officer of the DWS Group, a German asset manager affiliated with Deutsche Bank. I joined to work with other ESG specialists across the platform to align our principles, approach and strategies. She's part of a cohort of investment advisors in the environmental, social and governance industry, tasked with combining investment profits with social purpose. The challenges that DWS faced is, is common across the asset management industry. I mean, ESG is still nascent and it's super complex. But just a year later, by the time she addressed the Women in Sustainability Finance webinar... Uh, today, during this webinar, Desiree will share her knowledge and experience of more than 20 years in sustainable finance and global markets. She was out of work. Will... I was fired, I was terminated. Brutal words, but it, it is the truth. It was... Um, I didn't expect it. Uh, it was really hardcore. So what happened? According to Ms. Fixler, her team found serious issues with the way DWS reported its ESG assets under management. She argued DWS was engaging in greenwashing, telling its investors that its investment products or funds were more environmentally friendly than they actually were. But DWS ignored her concerns. Instead of accepting my, my edits, I was fired and the annual report with these misstatements came out a day later. The story doesn't end there. Deutsche Bank and its asset management unit, DWS, have been raided by Frankfurt police. Prosecutors say the search was related to allegations of so-called greenwashing by the asset manager. On May 31st of this year, 50 German police, investigators and regulators, acting on Ms. Fixer's allegations, raided the offices of DWS. A day later, a score of Warman, the CEO who hired Ms. Fixler, Resigned. DWS Group says CEO Asoka Berman has resigned and will be replaced by the head of Deutsche Bank's corporate bank, Stefan Hoops. It's not yet clear whether authorities have found evidence of misbehaviour. And DWS and Mr Warman deny the allegations. But scandals like the one at DWS have hit a nerve with investors and regulators who worry that ESG is more talk than action. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. And in today's show, the flaws in capitalism's answer to climate change. First, we'll look at the backlash against ESG investing. I came to the conclusion that it was like giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient. This is something that sounds great, everyone wants to believe it, it's well marketed, it's green, you know, but in reality, there's absolutely no evidence that this actually plays out in reality. Then we'll look at some of the efforts to reform the industry with a visit to the first state, Delaware. Henry, when I think of Delaware, I think of seafood and Joe Biden. Why have you brought me to Delaware to think about corporate history? And we'll ask what it would take 
to save ESG. E and S and G independently all have their merits. Where it goes wrong is when they're put together in one ugly acronym. And for it to save the planet. Hi, Mike and Sumaya. Hello, Alice. Hi, Em. To what extent have you been watching us all complain about the heat wave here in Europe and thinking lightweights? I mean, I pity anyone who has to endure 40 degree Celsius or 100 degree Fahrenheit heat without any air conditioning. I actually have a top tip, uh, which is that when things are very warm, one should eat frozen grapes. (laughs) So the subject of this week's podcast is uh, a little bit about things being too warm. Today's episode is about one popular way to combat climate change that is perhaps a little bit too good to be true. Yes, that's right. We've touched on ESG investing before on the show. Uh, In May, we spoke about proxy battles and why activist shareholders were increasingly using them as a way to pressure companies on things like environmental, social and governance issues. We also played a, a dramatic clip from the investor Peter Thiel comparing ESG to the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. That episode also featured another state motto, Nebraska and the Corn Husker State. Yeah, I think I slipped that in because I just love a state motto. I love them so much. Yeah, sadly, slightly lacking in my part of the world. Although there is uh, a good exception, the Malaysian state of Malacca used to use don't mess with Malacca, which is evidently the the Texas of Southeast Asia. (laughs) Well, this week's episode builds not on discussion of state mottos, but on the discussion of ESG and corporate purpose. And it's based on the reporting of our colleague, Henry Trix, who has spent months looking into the backlash against ESG for a special report that is going to be published this week. So let's bring him in. Hello, Henry. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? How's the the heat wave treating you? Hi, Alice. Uh, Yeah, um, yeah, it's hot here. Yesterday, um, I made the mistake of working from home and found myself trying to get as close to the basement as possible. But then I became joined by my by my kids, um, which made it uh, even more difficult to work. So this morning, I got up very early and cycled into the office and I'm now basking in air conditioning. So... This week, you're writing for the paper about ESG. You have this sort of big, excellent special report on the topic. And ESG has been around for a while as an idea. What made you want to do this sort of really deep dive on ESG now? You're right. ESG has been around for a while. It got its first airing as far back as 2004, when a whole bunch of global institutions with about $6 trillion in their assets began urging companies, investors, asset managers, etc., to develop ESG criteria to sort of strengthen financial markets and, and promote sustainable development. It's really mushroomed in the last few years, especially during the pandemic. The figure that gets most attention is um, the figure of $35 trillion, which is basically the amount of money that asset managers say is screened under some sort of ESG lens. That's about, you know, nearly 40%, I think, of, of total assets under management. Having said that, I think it's a little bit of a bogus uh, figure because um, there's no real way of calculating how much asset managers do use those ESG criteria. And so the figure that 
I feel more comfortable with is, is one of about $3 trillion, which is basically the number of ESG-specific funds that there are out there investing in companies based on their sort of ESG score, if you like. So ESG has got a lot bigger. And how do those ESG funds work? You know, how do they take into account environmental, social or governance issues? Well, the most common way that they do it is by screening out companies that investors don't want to touch with a barge pole. You know, there are sort of sin industries, you know, tobacco is one that many well-meaning investors might just feel they don't want to invest in. And so they put their money into funds that explicitly say that they won't invest in those. That's been the backbone of ESG investing up until now. Recently, it's become more a question of investing in companies that show some signs that they're actually improving their performance on different ESG metrics. So, you know, a heavy carbon emitter that's reducing its carbon footprint might be an attractive company to invest in. And the attraction for many of especially the the, the younger investors who've been attracted by the promise of ESG is that it sort of helps to make the world a better place, that they make some money and that they also do some good with their investments. Although the asset management industry itself is very careful to make clear when it's sort of being interrogated on how much good it does for the world. Say, actually, its purpose is not to make the world a better place. It's not to fight climate change. That goes way beyond an asset manager's fiduciary duty. In fact, what it aims to do is to assess the long-term risk to companies from environmental or social pressures and ensure in that respect that the company is safe from future regulation or punishment. In other words, it's very much considered to be a risk management tool. And part of the argument there is if you screen out companies that have huge regulatory risks or social and governance risks and invest in ones that look better, you might earn higher returns as well, right? Yes, that is exactly it. The industry's um, most uh, popular mantra is doing well by doing good. And shudder at that, if you will, but that is <laughs> that is what investors basically think they are doing by investing in ESG. Great. So I think we're going to pause on that note, but you'll be joining us later again in the show to talk about you know, the case for ESG, whether or not it's lived up to those sort of ideas, and if not, what needs to be done to make it work better. So I guess go recline in your air-conditioned office and we'll, we'll see you in a bit. Thanks, Alice. I'll do that. Look forward to it. So, Mike Sumeya, when was the first time that you came across ESG investing and what did you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously this this concept had been floating around for a while, but I think the first time I engaged with it properly was when in 2019 I was interviewing the CEO of S&P Global for an event and I, I took on this job of putting the most cynical possible version of, of this trend to him. And the way I put it was, you know, S&P Global was obviously trumpeting this this new 
craze. But of course, they're in the business of measurement, right? So obviously, they're going to be pushing new things to measure. And back then, when you looked at it, it looked like one of the issues was there were just so many different measures of this thing. And they didn't often seem to correlate very well with each other. And actually, in his answer, um, the, the CEO, Doug Peterson, said there were 36 different data companies all trying to provide measurements. So it just seemed like it wasn't very settled. And, and it was potentially a problem that there was this competition to measure the slightly fuzzy thing. Yeah, I think it must have been. I, I seem to recall when I was working in London, sort of uh, where, where I left in 2018, it was really sort of kicking off then. And then on moving to Asia, it was much less institutionalized. You had some Western investors in Asia who might have been very keen on it, but a lot of domestic investors um, that were moving at a very different speed and, and, and were less interested in ESG. And he said, initially, you also have a lot of issues regarding, say, uh, green bonds in different countries where the, the definitions of what counts as a green bond are really, really varied. Um, you might find you know, huge differences country to country. And I think, honestly, I had a similar sort of reaction to Samea, which is that everyone loves a measurement. And when you're the one bringing the measurements into common use, or even better, if you're making those measurements legally binding, it gives you this enormous amount of influence and this advantage if you're the one sort of setting the terms in the first place. Yeah, I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to see that might be kind of suspect. But I have to say one of the the big turning points for me in terms of my thinking on ESG and the industry was when Tarek Fancy, the former chief investment officer for sustainability at BlackRock, published uh, this open letter on Medium last August. He called it the secret diary of a sustainable investor. I wanted to speak to Tarek to get his thoughts about the growing ESG backlash. Hi, Tarek. Welcome to Money Talks. Hi. Nice to be here. Yes, thank you so much for, for joining us. So you were the co-CIO of sustainable investing at BlackRock, the world's biggest asset management firm, which currently has around $10 trillion of assets uh, from 2018 until late 2019. And in 2021, you wrote an op-ed arguing that Wall Street is just greenwashing the world, making sustainable investing PR and distracting from the problem of climate change. Before we get into all of that, can we start by going back to the very beginning? You must have believed in sustainable investing and ESG in 2017 when you interviewed for that job. So what did you want to achieve or think that you could achieve by taking that role at the firm? I had a bit of an unusual career path because I had done banking and then investing for a long time. Uh, doing distressed or vulture investing, which is pretty aggressive, and then had left and created a nonprofit for digital learning. And having sort of lived on both extremes, I was approached to say that this is an opportunity to merge the two in a way that, you know, creates both profit and purpose. That was sort of the, the, the idea behind it was that if companies that perform better on environmental and social parameters are also more profitable, then arguably you can use that to become a better investor. And start to tilt capital more towards responsible sort of activities that serve the public interest. And so what were some of the first indications you saw that you think those ideas weren't true? As I started digging in and actually trying to work with our different investment teams across the firm, across different verticals, geographies, industries, I just found that the claims and what people believed to be true uh, wasn't really backed up by any research. That's one of the first things I found. It was, you know, really dodgy research confusing correlation with causation. And one of the biggest challenges I saw was that there's a big di divergence between sort of the people doing ESG at a lot of firms 
and the sort of financial and technical sort of skills that normally exist in the industry. And how were they different? For example, I'm one of the only people I figured out very early on that actually had an investing background. As I got closer to it, I started to realize that there was a lot of wishful thinking and really just sloppy analysis that wasn't backed up by any kind of research. It just didn't even make any sense. And the investment teams and the portfolio managers tended to know that, right? They, you know, they said, listen, if ESG data is useful, you know, we would have found it already. We don't need some ESG team stocked with people who often have philanthropy backgrounds coming and telling us how to invest. As I dug more and more and went across the firm, I just started to realize that my role was not really an investment role. I was the chief investment officer, but this was a marketing role. I didn't think at that point it was harmful, but I came to the conclusion that it was like giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient, right? If you think of climate change as a slow spreading cancer, then this is something that sounds great. Everyone wants to believe it. It's well marketed. It's green, you know, but in reality, there's absolutely no evidence or reason to believe from an expert practitioner's perspective that this actually plays out in reality. When you say reality, what do you mean? What was happening? I mean, two things. There's two claims that are made in the ESG space. First of all, that ESG is good for returns because well, more you know, responsible companies are more profitable. And the second claim is that that also has real-world social impact. And that part seemed to not only not be true, it doesn't even seem like anyone cared about it. You know, people were saying, oh, if you, if you buy an ESG ETF, that has real-world impact. And honestly, anyone who spent any time in finance starts to look closely and says, wait a second, these are secondary shares traded already on public markets. Just because I give you a basket of shares with a few more green things in it because, you know, you're willing to pay more because you care about social responsibility, doesn't change anything in the real world because a hedge fund like the one I used to work at many years ago, you know, would easily buy whatever you didn't own. You started to have these kinds of doubts early on. It sounds from your essay that they sort of mounted up over time and you essentially had a come to God moment or, or something like that. And what was it that eventually sort of made you put all of the pieces together and think, well, it's not just that ESG doesn't live up to these promises, it's that it's actively harmful? Honestly, it was really the pandemic, right? Because I left BlackRock shortly before the pandemic hit. After I left, I started reading more to get back to the actual economic theory, right? Of like, what do we actually need to do to flatten the uh, emissions curve? And it was very clear to me that all of the solutions that our experts in society have told us, the economists, right, are that we need to, you know, flatten the curve of emissions through systemic reforms led by government, right? So they could be vehicle emissions limits, they could be fines or taxes on pollution, these sorts of things. And yet here we were, I kind of looked at it and said, wait, this is just a free market self-corrects theory, right? Being applied to the greatest market failure in history. And so all of that happened, you know, reading all that stuff. And then all, all of a sudden the pandemic occurs, right? And then suddenly you have a very fast moving systemic curve that science is telling us to flatten. In this case, it's not emissions, it's infections. And suddenly there's a government, it has special powers that we vest in it and they can use it to flatten this curve because it's in the public interest. And so there was a clear inconsistency around that. And I think that's got me thinking that, wait a second, like, is there a possibility that sustainable investing is actually harmful? You start realizing that, wait a second, if everybody believes in this win-win fantasy that we can just kind of leave things the way they are and have a whole bunch of new ESG companies come up and that'll help fix capitalism without the obvious solutions that experts tell us, you know, we end up in a situation where we burn a lot of time, right? And that's effectively what we've been doing for years. It is still quite like an extreme vault fast that you went through. In the space of three years, you sort of went from being arguably one of the most powerful sustainable investors in the world to sort of abandoning that 
power and then essentially trying to sort of tear down the idea. Are you still convinced that was the right decision, that there, there really was nothing you could have done from where you were sitting? A hundred percent. There's absolutely nothing I could. If I went internally and told Larry Fink and the rest of the people, hey, we should go out there and make an argument that regulation is the answer. It wouldn't serve BlackRock's quarterly earnings interests, right? So there was no way to do it, you know, beyond sort of saying, listen, this needs to be subject to a public debate because right now people seem to be wearing horse blinders where they think the only answers to addressing these crises are divestment or engagement. Obviously, shareholder engagement is better than divestment, but that's still not the answer unless we believe that we could have dealt with the idea that smoking causes cancer in the 50s by fighting one by one proxy fights against cigarette companies. It doesn't make any sense, right? Obviously, we should regulate them. If you're in your shoes thinking ESG is a a distraction and and kind of a harmful one, what do you want to see happen now? I think where it needs to go would be an ESG 2.0, which separates two categories of things. On the first hand, you have tools, data, standards, uh, and I'd say most of all, a growing army of largely young people who care about sustainability, really the human capital entering the industry. Those are all great things but they need to be combined effectively. And today they're being combined into products that with no one really regulating what it is to be green or what's impact versus ESG, what does that even mean? So I think an ESG 2.0 would take the first category of things, the tools, data, and standards, and you know, sort of apply them in a more honest and rigorous way. And a narratives that are very clear that say, listen, like, sure, we need more ESG data standards, but that doesn't mean that we don't need regulation. Like, I'll give you a great example. I, I like sports analogies. And so people keep arguing that disclosure of emissions is what we need. Disclosure is necessary, but not sufficient. If you just have disclosure alone, it'd be like saying it's a Premier League game. So now you can see a dangerous tackle in slow motion. That's great. But like, you still need a referee to give out a red card, right? I mean, just being able to see the carbon footprints of companies doesn't convince them that they should be, you know, doing anything different. Tarek, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading your essay, which, uh, as this interview would suggest, is replete with extended uh, sports metaphors. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. No problem. But just so you know, the, the original version of the essay used football or uh, soccer. But uh, I came to the conclusion it needed to be read in the US more, more than in Europe. So switch to basketball. Uh, I'm sure our British listeners will love that it was originally soccer. <laughs> thank you so much. No problem. My pleasure. I did warn you there were more metaphors coming. Yeah, very elegantly done. And on the topic of elegant use of the English language, before we go into the second part of the show, where we talk about what, as Tarek mentions, the second version of ESG could look like, this is where we tell you that you really ought to take out a subscription to The Economist. Exactly. Otherwise, you will be completely unable to read Henry's masterful special report. You will also be unable to see our fascinating chart looking at extreme heat. Or Alice is reporting on the disconnect between recession planning on Wall Street and spending on Main Street. Yes, it's been a busy week and listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you very much. You should check out our Money Talks newsletter and a brand new one, which we launched this month called The Bottom Line, which focuses on business and technology. You can sign up for those at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes for this episode. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Okay, we've just heard Tarek on the case against ESG, but I want to bring in somebody who doesn't quite agree with his assessment. Tariq Fancy is by far not the first person to talk about greater accountability and transparency. Lisa Wall is CEO at the US Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment. Like Tariq, she says that there needs to be more transparency and accountability around ESG investing. In fact, she's been arguing that point for years. But what she takes issue with is the idea that ESG is actually a distraction from the gritty work of changing government policy on climate change. This is where I perhaps have my strongest reaction to the critique of having the sustainable funds is pushing attention away from really what needs to happen in public policy. And as the organization that started working on public policy in a serious and meaningful way over a decade ago, I can't tell you how profoundly wrong I think that comment is. There is nobody in the sustainable investment field who is going to tell you that by ourselves, we will be able to make the kind of systems changing alterations in society that only public policy can deliver. It is a strategy. It is in many ways no different than a consumer who decides they're not going to buy something made with child labor, right? They're thinking about how do they use their assets to get to what they would like to see in the world. Investment is no different. It is a strategy. And folks in this field are using it to drive whatever environmental, social, and governance changes they can drive through the investment field. Now, our members are working on public policy. I have never gone up to Congress and had a single member tell me, hey, we're not working on climate change because we expect you sustainable investors to fix it, right? And so I wanted to know when Mr. Fancy was making that critique, whether he actually has ever gone to Congress and talked to a member of Congress or to a regulator, because if one has, one would not have this impression. So what would you say then in defense of the ESG industry? So what we say is the work that we do in finance is incredibly important in its potential and its actual ability to move forward ESG issues in whatever way that's being done across different asset classes and in shareholder engagement. But policy is the framework in which all of that happens. So we don't see any trade-off between doing sustainable investment and having that have a negative impact on what happens in public policy. It's actually the exact inverse. When you go up to meet with a member of Congress, Republican or Democrat, they go, we didn't know that there were investors out there who care about these issues. That's so important for us to know that there's a piece of the private sector that is deeply concerned about these issues. So I'm not quite sure why someone like Tariq Fancy cannot make that connection. Thank you so much for joining the show, Lisa. So great to join you today. Thank you for the invitation. And now we're going to bring Henry back in. Henry, hello. Uh, hi, Alice. We've just heard Lisa Wall rebut some of Tarek's claims. 
And I'm curious to get your thoughts on the industry as a whole in a bit. But first, I wanted to ask you about something that both Tarek and Lisa mentioned, which is the role that regulation should play, both in terms of the ESG industry and in terms of forcing or encouraging companies to become more green. What do you think about that? Yeah, this is a really important part of the ESG story because things are are changing almost as we speak. So over the course of this year, there have been powerful initiatives. One is by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, to make some climate-related disclosures mandatory, which means that companies will be on the hook to disclose information about their carbon emissions. Okay. And so you argue about the logic of having these sort of big global standards, but still it sounds like pretty ambitious regulation. Is that sort of ruffling feathers in in any parts of the sort of corporate universe? I I hear that you went to Delaware on, on your special reporting trip. Yes, you're right, Alice. My colleague Stevie Hertz and I visited Delaware to see how the corporate law establishment there was reviewing things like these climate-related disclosures that the SEC is trying to push. Henry, when I think of Delaware, I think of seafood and Joe Biden. Why have you brought me to Delaware to think about corporate history? Because Delaware which is a tiny state, second smallest in the US in terms of land mass, and very few people, less than a million people, has 1.6 million companies incorporated here, i.e. more companies than there are people. How is that possible? How can there be more companies here than there are people? Well, the companies are not actually here as such. They're registered here, which means that they basically exist in a filing cabinet. <laughs> but they, uh, they're registered here because Delaware is where corporate law is litigated, basically. So it's a, it has a very powerful corporate law society that essentially makes laws on how companies operate. And for most of the last century, this is the, the state where corporate law has effectively decided the way that companies are run, the relationship between companies and their shareholders. Um, And that has set the tone for the whole country and actually for a lot of the world. And kind of looking around, this doesn't feel like downtown Manhattan. This doesn't feel like the city of London. We're standing outside the old town hall, which is a lovely colonial brick building. We're on, I guess, kind of what's the main drag of downtown. And there's a couple of restaurants, a couple of shops. There's not men's shirt shops and places you can buy a $20 salad for lunch. Yeah, you're right. You know, people from Delaware will brag that the sort of the square mile around where we are is as powerful in corporate law terms as, you know, I guess the US Congress is in politics or Wall Street is in finance. So there is more to Delaware than meets the eye. But new proposals out of Washington could threaten Delaware's dominance, as well as that of shareholders. America's Securities and Exchange Commission has proposed a rule that is almost 500 pages long and is hugely ambitious. It aims to force disclosure on climate-related risks and emissions goals. This is one of the few places that still allows smoking. Though, as you can breathe in, you don't smell much smoke. Very few people do. But once in a while, there are cigar smokers. And this is one of the few places you can still do it and uh, do it legally. We met corporate governance expert Charles Elson at the Delaware Club. 
It's a brownstone mansion with a garden so overgrown we walk past it at first. I've seen huge changes in corporate behavior as a result of those discussions which took place in these very rooms over a very good crab cake or a fried oyster <laughs> or clam juice. But some of those changes in corporate behavior haven't always come from the inside. For Elson, the federal government has made a habit of swooping in on corporate regulation and, in his mind, eroding Delaware's status. Which brings us to the SEC's latest move, demanding corporate disclosure of companies' environmental and social credentials. On a surface, it's simply disclosing to investors uh, how companies are responding to environmental and social challenges. But it's much more than that. You not only have to disclose how you're doing it, how your suppliers are doing it, many of whom might not even be public companies, in an attempt to change the way they approach the same issue. So effectively, Delaware itself is kind of left out of the whole story. Mr. Elson is really no fan of these proposed rules, and neither, it should be said, are many companies who say that the cost of implementing the SEC's guidelines would be astronomical and potentially counterproductive to the functioning of regular business. The problem with that is the ES becomes almost the dominant focus of the corporate board, and it shouldn't be, because ultimately, while it's an important issue, it's not the dominant issue. The dominant issue is how do we make this company work successfully? Delaware's era of control of corporate law may be receding, in part because of pressure about ESG. But it'll always have seafood, the state's other big industry. While we were at lunch, Charles persuaded me to try a local delicacy. Henry, did you like the clam juice? I, I sipped it rather than drank it. And I uh, thought it was very reflective of Delaware, I'm sure, but I didn't quite get to the bottom of the glass. Yeah, perhaps the good people of Delaware and I can't agree on much. You know, I don't know that I can see the appeal of clam juice, but I can see the logic of at least trying to use regulation like the SEC rule to encourage companies to do some sort of proper disclosure. What do you think, Henry? Is regulation the right way to encourage companies to disclose this kind of information? Yeah, I think it's a good way, but it does very much depend on what companies are required to to disclose. It needs to be material to their business. You know, there's little use in a software company, for instance, making a big song and dance about its carbon emissions because it hardly has any. What really matters are the heavy emitters, such as steel, aluminium, oil and gas, etc. It's very important that you know they are required to disclose uh, more information, not just about their internal processes, but also those of the, the, their suppliers and their consumers. And the more standardised the measures, the better. OK, so let's take stock of, of everything, I guess, that we've touched upon this episode. It seems like ESG has some deep flaws, or at the very least that it sort of overpromised. Is there anything that you want to see ESG do rather than the regulatory state? Or do you think it's sort of, you know, been a distraction that we should essentially just ditch now? What you're really asking is, what can we salvage here? And it is important 
that we think about that question. Because there are some genuine factors that have been driving this whole push for ESG. Climate change is the biggest problem facing humanity at present. There are serious social issues in the workplace and outside the workplace. And as we've said, corporate governance uh, is an old workhorse, but it's done a good job for a long time. So E and S and G independently all have their merits. Where it goes wrong and where it's completely incoherent is when they're put together in one ugly acronym. And I think that the main argument that I've taken away from all of this is that they should be split up. You know, those who are interested in S can pursue funds that are devoted to social criteria and the same with governance. But I think the most important thing, given the priority that there is on tackling climate change and given that I suspect for many investors, that's their number one priority too. I really do think the E should be split out and we should even become more ruthless than that. I would like to see the E stand not for environment, but strictly for emissions. Because, you know, yes, there are other environmental problems that are huge out there, such as the threat to biodiversity and the threat to water. But really, if we're thinking about climate change, the one thing that we have to tackle is emissions and putting the emphasis firmly on that, an emphasis that companies can measure should finally enable something good to come out of this whole ESG melee. Okay. And so, you know, if you think about us uh, talking about this in a few years' time, do you think that is the direction the industry is moving in? Will we be talking about, you know, emissions funds or where do you think things are heading now? I would like to think, yes, that we will have emissions funds or carbon funds or, I don't know, you could call them natural capital funds. Whatever name the industry decides to come up with, the important point is that they really do focus on the one thing that is truly measurable and for which measurements are getting better and better, and that is the carbon footprint. Natural capitalism. Sounds good. Henry, (laughs) thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks so much, Alice. Okay, so Mike and Sumeya, what are your takeaways from all of this? Do you also think ESG should drop the SG or should we drop it altogether? Well, you know, I told you earlier about my interview with S&P Global and the way that um, the CEO framed it was as companies and investors waking up to these other non-traditional risks on their balance sheet and the ESG movement just kind of measuring that or formalizing that. But now there's really this open tension between the question of whether these are real risks that are already internalized by the companies, in which case, why are you measuring them? Why aren't companies just taking into account these risks on their own? Or is it that companies really have not internalized these external risks? And if so, there are going to be tensions between those trying to maximize returns and those really paying attention to their ESG ratings. Yeah, I guess I'm uh, a bit of a sort of dinosaur on these issues in the sense that I'm I'm pretty sceptical. It's not very fashionable anymore, but I, I think when you try and move away from sort of concepts of 
shareholder primacy uh, from businesses, you know, pursuing their bottom line, when you try and bring in these other concerns, these new stakeholders, you can see things get quite messy quite quickly. And I think in sort of fairly typical economist fashion, the deeper you get into the weeds with ESG, the more it looks like instead you should have clear rules. That means you're taxing carbon more, you should tax carbon more. If you want legal and regulatory requirements on governance, you should bring them in and then you should let investors just sort of pursue their returns. I'm not really sure uh, personally whether I sort of trust investors to do this themselves. I'm not sure they're particularly good at it. As I say, that's the very sort of cynical journalist way of looking at it, but that's how I approach these things. I too feel fairly sceptical about this now, especially having sort of read through all of the nitty gritty of ways in which this has gone awry in Henry's report. It's too easy to think that you can save the planet by reallocating your your money into an ESG fund. But I do like the idea that there's something that can be salvaged here. If you are an investor who cares more about firms reducing their emissions than the average investor or than governments have been able to implement, then you might be able to buy into an emissions fund that has a real impact in sort of motivating companies in reducing those. And that seems to me to be sort of much more powerful and useful than what we have at the moment, which are these sort of really broad, really woolly ESG funds that try to sort of bucket companies into, well, this is a good firm and this is a bad firm. And you have no idea sort of how they've made that distinction. You know, this was what Tesla fell foul of. They dropped out of an ESG index and were replaced by ExxonMobil for some sort of social and governance issues when if you cared more about the environmental stuff, you clearly would want to hold Tesla over Exxon. And that kind of dynamic makes ESG very easy to pillory, but there's no reason why you couldn't have a better, cleaner, narrower version of it. And on that note, we should get to our stats of the week. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. My stat is 30 to 40%, which is the increase in mortality risk over a six to seven year period associated with being lonely. So I came across this because of an old and very often made claim that loneliness is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which is not strictly correct. There's an article in the British Medical Journal that finds that 15 a day is associated with a higher mortality risk of 180%. So so quite a bit more. Still, being lonely associated with bad things. This is the sort of cheery content that brings people to Money Talks. This is sort of the fun, enjoyable stuff. Um, So my statistic of the week is 95% and it concerns a sort of personal obsession of mine That is the yield on a bond uh, issued by Country Garden Holdings, which is a Chinese property company. The yield on a bond gets higher when the price of a bond falls. So this bond has fallen a lot in price. Uh, A year ago, for reference, the yield was about 3%, which is a pretty low, relatively safe sort of bond. And I think it's just a really shocking illustration of what's going on in this sector at the moment, um, sort of wholesale collapse of a lot of asset values. Uh, Yeah, really interesting stuff going on. Yeah, we don't give out investment advice, but surely, you know, massive opportunity too, if they pay it back. (laughs) Yep. If if they pay it back, I'd say it'd be good. You'll make lots of money if they pay it back. Um, Yeah, that's as close as we get to investment advice. Great. So my stat of the week is 150%, which is the increase in price of sand in the desert. 
Yes, in the Permian Basin, which is filled to the brim with sand, apparently the price of fracking sand has climbed from $22 a tonne at the end of 2021 to $55 a tonne now. And frac sand is kind of special sand. It's, you know, clean and it's a particular sort of particle size. So you can't just pick the sand up off the ground and frack with it. But still, pretty galling to have a shortage of sand in the desert. Our thanks this week to Tarek Fancy and Charles Elson. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Or write to us at podcasts at economist.com. And as we told you last week, if you like Money Talks, you might be interested in our new six-week online course on fintech and the future of finance. You can get a special discount as a Money Talks listener if you go to economist.com slash future of finance and enter the discount code MONEYTALKS at the checkout. This week's episode was produced by Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Nico Ravast. Our editor is Kim Gittelson. I'm Simea Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Forward. And this is The Economist. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.